Well, what a great morning to worship together and to um, just have the life of all our ages here. Uh, it's really wonderful to do that. Um, you know, it's, it is you know, the fact that kids are here. Um, as we all know, kids are pretty innocent, ask pretty um, honest questions, and, and, you know, they even enjoy a little potty humor and things like that, and you're wondering, why am I going here? And, and I should also mention that millennials love direct honesty and authenticity, right? And um, so I'm just going to just ask this question that these kids would probably love. How many um, wash your hands after you use the restroom? Now, don't put your hands up. Now, come on, please. You're probably wondering why. You know, it, you know especially in our church around flu season, cold season, um, people, be, we get notes. Beginning in November, we get notes where people will say, you know, if we're entering this, could you please not do the turn and greet, and let's not shake and hold hands or whatever we're going to do. And if we were going to be really biblical, we would, according to Romans 16, 16, we'd greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, we don't do that. And so we've been actually been thinking about, you know, maybe we should do some things, not shaking hands, but kind of a turn and wave. We've talked about that, or the turn and pound um, kind of thing. But you're, you're wondering, well, what, what are you talking about here? Well, um, there's a good reason I'm talking about this, because we live in what we, I would call a um, hand-washing epidemic is, is occurring in our country. Better probably to say a lack of hand-washing epidemic is happening in our country. Philip Tierno is the doctor of something called clinical microbiology at the New York University Hospital Center, and he wrote a book called The Secret Life of Germs. He says that 80% of all disease is passed by human contact, mostly by hands. But we don't even keep our hands very clean, the book tells us. He said studies revealed that 50% of, the, of all people do not wash their hands even after using the bathroom. Think about that. That's one out of every two people do not wash their hands after they use the bathroom. So if you've washed your hands, then the person next to you probably doesn't. And you may want to move over a little. But the problem with that is that person on the other side probably doesn't either, according to this study. Now, you may be wondering, you know, if you take this study seriously... They actually say you need to wash your hands for 20 seconds. And he gives some, some ideas that you need to get in between the fingers, over the knuckles, under the, um, the nail rim, if you're going to do this well. And, and they recommend that you sing happy birthday at least two times through. Some of you are shaking your head. You understand this, right? My friend John suggests that churches play in their bathrooms the hallelujah chorus and that you have to get through 10 hallelujahs before you can actually stop washing your hands. Now, catch this. He says the church would probably put the person's picture up on the screens in the sanctuary just as a kind of public shaming. You know, no, just kidding. To make this happen. No, it's really interesting. You think about it. We have all these laws about this stuff. You see little posters. You go into a restroom and you'll find in almost every restaurant on a mirror a little poster that says, make sure if, if, if patrons, if, usually it's employees or associates, you know, wash your hands. In fact, by law, you're supposed to wash your hands after you touch your hair, any part of your body, somebody else, or after you sneeze. And that would mean that you'd be washing your hands about every minute if you took the law seriously, right? And if you think about it, we have all these regulations around hand washing. And you know why? Because the scientific community is convinced that we spread germs that cause illness, and that illness can lead to actual death. 
The scientific community is, is convinced of this. So they say what we need to do is we need this radical, if that's the cause, we need this radical cure of hand washing. Now you're probably saying, now what's all this about when we're talking about why the cross? Tough question. Because if you're going to look at this in a very, in, in a very similar way, um, people you hear all the time, well, you need the cross, you need the cross. And you say, well, why do you need the cross? Well, you need the cross if there's sufficient cause for someone, according to the word of Scripture, to die. And if it's really true that someone has to die to incure whatever the cause is, then it should probably move you to a place of going, wow, that's really not something just that I should be mildly interested in or that I come with an observational idea around it. But maybe, as you have seen, if the cross is truly necessary, then the kind of awe that has been expressed over and over again from generation to generation through books and poems and hymns and choruses and personal stories and testimonies, it begins to make sense. Words like, like Charles Wesley or songs that we've been singing. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Well, it makes no sense if we don't understand what the cause really is all about. Why in the world that extreme sense of death? In fact, if you, you ask the question, why the cross? To get to the answer of the cure, you have to understand, as I said, the cause. And, and if you read Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he says in verse 3, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 in these verses this week and then also next week when we talk about resurrection and about doubt. Why the resurrection? You'll see he says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That little statement right there is critically important. We're going to talk about these two things. We're going to talk about the cure, Christ's death. We're going to talk about the cause, our sin. Paul says Christ died for our sins, and then he adds these things according to the Scriptures because he wants them to know, because they weren't living in a, in a day and age where you could watch TV and hear the news report and, and, and have... Um, information that would travel quickly because people would come in with all kinds of newfangled theories and understanding of why you need to do what you need to do and they'd have these religious ideas and, and, and these things would pop up in an area and he's basically saying, I just want you to know, I didn't make this up. These 12 guys who were following this guy named Jesus didn't make this up. This is not something that Jesus himself even made up. Jesus came in line according to the scriptures. This that we are going to talk about is as old as the Old Testament itself. In fact, its Genesis is in Genesis, the book, the first one in the Bible. And the reason why the cross, why this cure, goes back to the cause, which Scripture says from the first pages, really, it's because of sin. I stated a few weeks back that in the message on the problem of evil and suffering that ultimately... It is our free will and the result of our sin and pride that, has, that allows for evil and suffering. And so in some sense, there is a mystery to it, and I outline that there, but in one sense, there isn't a mystery. It's because of free will that sin has entered into this world. And I want to share this. This is the Bible's diagnosis. But I, I want you to hear this. I am not saying every person suffers directly or proportionately because of their sin. Okay, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation. 
In fact, the Bible denies that. You have to actually buy into some Eastern religious thought. You have to actually buy into some New Age stuff that has come as a result of that, where where you buy into this idea of karma, that you pay for whatever you did here, you paid for because of some previous life. The Bible doesn't even teach that. The Bible does say this, though. Scripture says that the suffering of the human race as a whole is to a large extent attributable to the sin as a human race as a whole. It happened at one point in history that sin entered in. In fact, Genesis 3, this profound but simple story, makes this claim. Sin enters human life and experience because of our willful rejection of these things, of God's authority. Because of our willful um, rejection and this distrust of God's goodness. You can see it right in the first story. And also because of our disobedience of God's commands. And the effect in his brokenness in every relationship with God, with others, even within ourselves, there's a brokenness and alienation. Every relationship was spoiled, infected, diseased, and is moving toward, according to the word of God, decay and then death. Even the earth, all of creation, has been infected by the invasion of sin and evil. So if you, you just go through and kind of a 40,000-foot kind of scan across Genesis 3 through 11, you'll see this is what the Bible talks about. It is this idea that sin, like a disease, spreads progressively and pervasively like a cancer. In fact, when you hear, and someone just mentioned this morning about someone who had liver cancer, or in some cases, like when you hear someone has pancreatic cancer, um, it is this stealthy, progressive, pervasive, rapidly growing cancer that creates decay and eventually death very rapidly. And when you hear that, usually your response internally, you don't want to say it to the person if they actually are telling you, but when someone else tells you, you just go, oh, Right? There is a sense that when you read the word of God, when this message was being read, and they were reading Genesis 3 through 11, and they talked about the fact that through Adam and Eve, um, this this cancer of sin entered into the world, there's almost a sense that people who who understand their pride, their sin, and how that messes up their life, you kind of go, ah, because you really understand how devastating your own personal sin is. Chris Wright says it really well. He says, even in the simple story of Adam and Eve, we can see sin moving from the heart with its desire to the head with its rationalization and to the hand with its forbidden action and from the hands to their relationship with their shared complicity. And then as you just continue on, chapter 4 through the rest of 11, we see the desire of sin spread from this first marriage relationship to envy and violence between their brothers, those siblings, to brutal vengeance eventually within families, to corruption and violence in wider societies until it permeates to the entirety of human culture, infecting generation after generation with, inf- with, with ever-increasing virulence. And so the Bible's diagnosis is really clear, brutally honest. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, our sin, my sin, and especially your sin, because we like to blame people, right? Has caused this. So Christ died, says Paul, and this is not something made up, according to scriptures, for our sin. And the Bible's diagnosis of this is very clear. Sin has invaded every human being, every person. As the Word of God tells us, Rome through everyone is a sinner. Sin distorts every dimension of human personality, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, and social. It, it, it disrupts and brings decay and death to each of these. 
Sin pervades the structures and conventions of human societies and cultures. Sin escalates from generation to generation, even within human history. If it wasn't for God putting an end to it, sometimes after three generations. And sin affects even creation itself as it groans to be free from the tyranny of the sin that has entered into our world through, our, through human beings. And we read about it all the time in the paper. I mean, it's even hard to watch the news. I know of people who just say, I can't even read the paper, I can't watch the news anymore, because when I watch it, it just is so depressing. There's people who are going around and they're stabbing people with knives. There's people who go into schools where there's innocent children and they shoot them. There's, there's, there's actual regimes where there's dictators who set up and instead of helping and serving the people using their power to serve, they actually oppress the people in order that they can get their own personal whims and, and, and their own desires met. And, and we hear about even corporations that you may even work for some where the corporations, they're, they're supposed to do good by employing people, but even in the process of that, they're, they're, they, they themselves um, gouge their own employees through, through high benefits of those who are higher than them. And then there's this whole idea that they maybe might not be ethical and other things. And there's, you know, just we live within this and then we see it in people and we don't see it in our own lives. We see it in our marriages. We see it in relationship to all things. And, and at some point you go, why the cross? Christ died for our sins, says 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. That's why. But you know what? You, you can be in a place where you may not have a real high view. You know, we don't like to talk about sin in our culture today. But sin, if you just really want to talk about it, and, and it's easier for us to hear. So often when I even talk about it, I talk about our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, how that impacts and infects other things, that our hearts can be deceitful beyond our own recognition. So often we need to have help to be, get clarity. And so, so if you don't want to use that word sin, because it's just, you know, just talk about the fact that you have self-ish tendencies that have offended God and have broken relationships with others and have even hurt yourself. But if you're not convinced of that, then the cross makes no sense. Why the cross? See, if you're not really convinced that you have this cause that has been operating within you, your own personal sin, your own response to how you have offended God and hurt others, and, and you don't do and you go, you know what, it's just like the germs, it really doesn't matter. Scientifically, that may be true, but spiritually, some really incredibly wise people throughout history have, have been watching this and have been writing and actually have come down to us in Scripture that says, this is the reason, this is the cause there needed to be a death. And so as I um, was preparing this, and, and I just was thinking through this, you know, if you're not convinced of the cause, no one's going to line up for the cure, right? So it was about 4 a.m., July 23rd, 2012. A couple of years ago, my daughter Kelsey had been renting a room in a home in North Minneapolis with some other people, and she comes home at 4 a.m., I hear the garage door open, I'm going, what's going on, are we being, you know... When the garage door opens, you go, like, probably not a thief. So I, I, see, I see the door open. My, my daughter sticks in her head, and she says, Dad, I came home. There's a bat in my room. <laughs> okay, good. You know, I, it's not here, right? Yep, nope. So I try to go back to sleep. I can't. So the next morning, is our, it's our Monday, it was a Sunday night. It's our Monday morning staff meeting, and we're with the staff, and I'm joking with them. I'm just kind of saying, you know, if I'm not fully present with you today, I just had to, you know, this is what happened. And kind of joked about it. Around 3 or 4 in the afternoon, I get a phone call from Beth Moorhead, who 
calls me and says, you know, I was talking to my husband, and her husband's an ER doctor, um, Ian Moorhead, and she said, you know, he said that um, you, you need to really take this a little bit seriously. Um, you need to catch the bat and have it tested for rabies. I go, really? I mean, now we're like 10 hours later going, we're going to find this thing. Um, and if you don't, you need to bring your daughter Kelsey in for rabies shots. And I, you know, I'm thought, well, I don't know. I'm, thanks, Beth, very much. And kind of I had another meeting my wife and I had to go to. And in the process, on the way driving there, I thought, you know, I'm going to get a second opinion. So I call a good buddy of mine who's down in Atlanta, who's a phys- you know, physician as well. And, and I said to him, um, I said, Chuck, hey, I got to ask you, Chuck, you know, this happened to my daughter. And he goes, yeah, Kevin, you know what? He's exactly right. Because you don't know often with bats, if they're in there, you can't tell whether you've really been bitten or not. And here's the real problem. He said, the reality is, if she is infected, the, the infection is 100% death. Now, I said that in the first service, and a person, when I even mentioned that, goes, yep. And he came up afterwards and said he had been a missionary over one of the countries, and they didn't realize they didn't take the person, the person died. Now, so I've got this dilemma. I'm going, okay, because we checked in the shots with my daughter. We're checking this out with our medicals. It's expensive. It's painful. It's a long process. It seems like a radical cure for this cause that we don't even know because in our minds we're thinking the problem is we don't even know whether the bat really bit Kelsey. And then beyond that, we don't really know if the bat was rabid. And beyond that, although the truth is, now I find out later, that bats are the number one carrier of rabies. So we're kind of you know, thinking all these. So the possibility that the bat is rabid, that Kelsey's been bit, that she's been infected is really slight. But the reality is this. If she is infected, rabies is 100% deadly untreated. So at 7 p.m., my wife and I are driving home. We just stopped. As we're driving with eyes open, prayed, said, Lord, give us wisdom. What do we do? And just both said, you know what we need to do? We need to call Kelsey and her soon-to-be husband, Tori. We need to go to that house, and we need to find that bat. So at 7 p.m., it's some 15 hours later, we meet them at the house, we go to the house, my wife and and my daughter Kelsey are on the porch looking in through the window. There's been no one in the house because they kind of quarantined that area off, and so Tori and I grabbed um, some some equipment. I grabbed a scarf and a white waste paper basket. (laughs) He grabbed a screen, a window screen, and a tennis racket. I was very envious of the two things he had. And we go into that with our, you know, ones who love us watching from the window. And we come walking in, and he's got this, and I've got this thing, and we're looking for the bat. We have no idea if the bat's there or where the bat is. We look around, and and Tori's really bright, so he sees the fireplace, and he decides he's going to take the screen and put it in front of the fireplace because it will block the entrance if that bat tries to go out because it's really important to get this bat if it's there. So he puts the screen in there, and as he does so, he looks up, and here is the bat hanging on the mantle on a speaker, and he steps back. The bat falls down. The bat begins to move. I grab my waste paper basket and go right down on the bat. Now, yeah, you can clap. This is a big moment. Okay. So here's what's so cool. The bat has two little legs sitting out underneath the waste paper basket. Think of the Wizard of Oz in the Shoes of Ruby, you know? I get the thing positioned right, and then my daughter and my wife come in, and, and, I, and we say, get duct tape. Because duct tape, everything, you know, we don't know what we're doing. Get duct tape. They find the duct tape. 
We get a box, we put it under there, we wrap the whole thing up, get it all set. He's in his known new little prison. And I shake the thing thinking that I'm going to paralyze it by dizziness. <laughs> I find out later that there's a law against killing bats. Now I'm going, they break, enter, and try and kill someone? Don't you have a defense law here? And so I bring this bat dizzied and paralyzed, and we're thinking, okay, where do you go with this? I mean, is it just down the block? You know, we test our path, please. You know, wh- who's open? 8 p.m. So I call my neighbor. We have a neighbor who knows everything. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I mean in the good way, not like your spouse or your kids, but I mean knows everything. <laughs> and, um, and she says, go to the university vet hospital. So we go to the university vet hospital and we bring the bat in there and, you know, it only costs 25 bucks and we leave it with him. We get a call two days later and they call from the hospital and they give us the news. The bat did not have rabies. Kelsey's not infected. No treatment is needed. And I go, yeah, I was so happy. I want to tell you, this is, um, here's the truth, folks. The word of God is really clear on this. Every one of us has been infected by sin. Every person, according to the word of God, needs the treatment of the cross. Every person Jesus died for on that cross Sin is 100% fatal. We don't like to talk about this in our culture. It is not just something in this life. The Word of God says very clearly that when sin infects us, it leads to decay in not just our relationships. We can see it there. It leads often, you'll know it, in death in relationships. In that same way, it leads to death, eternal separation. It says with sin in your life, it is not dealt with. You are on a trajectory that will go to a place where you'll be isolated, alienated, and forever apart from God. And people say, well, I'm going to go to the place where my friends are. Baloney. Scripture never it says it is this place where our hearts are so alone and so, af- and so afraid and so um, alienated from everything unless sin is dealt with. See, when, you know, if you went to the movie Noah, it's not accurate, so you want to read the, the Bible, but you go to the movie, movie Noah, the people stand outside and they are actually um, mocking and making fun of, and they don't, they don't line up for the, the boat, they don't get in the boat where they can be saved because they don't believe there's going to be a flood. And I just want to share with you, if you don't believe that sin is actually infected and in your heart and you don't come to a place, why the cross? The cross is because in the cross, God through Jesus Christ comes and through the atonement makes us one with him, removes the sin from our heart. Not that you don't sin from there on after, but he now begins to give you his life power through the cross. Now, I said way too long on this message. I, I just have so much. I wanted to at one point talk about the theories of atonement because I just found it so fascinating that some of the theories of the atonement, such as the ransom theory and some of these, were, were things that were in the first um, 400 or so years of the Christian faith were the most important. And they make sense. 
And then at a certain time in around the Reformation, the whole penal substitution atonement theory became really popular and important. And all these are important, but sometimes theologians draw some of the things to the, to the point where they're always trying to draw every I and cross every T. But what the Word of God says really clearly is there are some words that are very, very clear that talk about our condition and the reason for the cross. And so I'm just going to do a high-level overview. It's like a diamond when you look at the work of the cross. The work of the cross, you can look at it from so many different angles. I think that's why in the word of God, he gives these different words. He says the cross does this. The cross redeems. One of the most common words for this whole idea of what happens on the cross, it redeems. And why would that be so important? Jesus himself, at one point, he's, he's having a conversation with his disciples. They're over there arguing about who's going to be number one and two. And Jesus goes, you guys don't get it. Power is not to be something that you use to oppress, to get what you can for yourselves. Power, if you ever have power, if you're in a place of authority, your position and authority is to use power to serve and love people. And that's just all turned upside down, says Jesus in our world. But he says, this is what you need to understand. I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life as a ransom, a payment. I came to redeem, buy back those who are under the power of sin, those who have sin controlling their life. And if you know that in your life right now, that's the reason for the cross. And they understood that and why it was such an important thing in that day and that age is because so many of them would get into debt and they would be sold into slavery. They would have people invade their land and they'd be taken into slavery. They would have this situation where they understood so clearly. They would tell a story in the Old Testament, which was a true story, of these people of Israel who'd go into Egypt. And in Egypt, God would raise up someone so he could free them from the tyranny and oppression of this Pharaoh so that this exodus could occur. And that's one of the visions of the cross is that he has come and on the cross he paid for your sin and he set you free in this substitutionary way and says, now you are free if you just put your faith and trust in what I've done. If you stand in line for the cure, if you accept the cure and begin to follow me, you will have life. And then he talks about the cross cleansings. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture of the fact that sin makes us dirty. And, and God gives all these illustrations of the law and shows that these laws to let people know that no one can come into the holy presence of God if there is sin in their heart and their life. Something has to be done. And you have all these pictures, and Jesus comes along into the presence and the holiness of God in Jesus. He touches lepers and others, and they're clean. They're clean. And the touch of Jesus, the cross is this, that in the cross there is forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, in, in one of the places where it talks about the cross. John writes, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin if we confess our sins. If we just will get real about it, agree, he is faithful and he will be just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse you, us, from all unrighteousness. The cross cleanses. The cross restores what happens with sin is sin causes us to wander. You look at Genesis again, Adam and Eve. They go and they hide, and God has to come after them because God is always coming after you. And you may be in that place today where you have, through sin in your own life, you understand that you feel yourself far from God. You feel all that wandering. And the whole purpose of the cross is the cross here is the place where he restores. And he says, here, you don't have to wander anymore. I will take your shame. I will take all that that makes you want to hide. You can come into my presence. I love you so much. The demonstration of the cross is my love that you would return. 
And Peter experienced that in his own life after he had followed Jesus, then denies Jesus, says, I got to go. And Jesus goes, what he does, he restores him. He brings him, he brings him home so that Peter at one point can write, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness by his wounds. You've been healed for you, like me, were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned. You've come home to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The cross reconciles. You ever been in a relationship where you just know it's not working and you even know that person has offended and hurt you? The reconciliation of the cross is that we love because God first loved us. He comes out. He restores. Not only does he bring us home, but he actually reconciles broken relationships. If your relationship is broken with him, that's what the cross is about. And the cross justifies. It's another huge word in Scripture, justification by faith. It's by faith that you are declared not guilty in God. That's what the cross does. We really should have no problem understanding this concept of guilt, but we do. When you do wrong, you are guilty. When you break the law, you're guilty. We have just a myriad of shows, Law and Order, NCIS, CSI Las Vegas, Miami, New York. Did you know there's a CSI Plymouth? No, there isn't. Anyway. There's forensic court uh, files, court TV. I could go on and on and on. We know how justice works. We know if we're really real with ourselves that before God, we've broken the law. And he says, you need someone who will come and provide a justification who will themselves take on your guilt so that you don't have to receive the punishment and penalty of your own breaking of the law, which is called sin. And so the cross justifies, as Paul says, Jesus was delivered over to death for sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared not guilty through faith, we now have peace with God. Oh, I'd love to go on. But I have to tell you, if you're, if you're convinced of the cause, you've been infected. There is a cure. But there's also a choice. You have to, by faith, say, I, I want this. I want to receive this. I want my sin cleansed and taken from me. There's a very popular person right now who is beginning to say some things around the whole area of what I call shame and guilt and vulnerability and trust. She's on TED Talks. She talks about her own experience where she came to a midlife crisis in this academic world trying to understand these things. She comes to this place of crisis. She says, I don't want to go to a church with the name Jesus on it, but I end up going to a church with the name Christ on it. Talks about the very fact that he didn't understand all this and was really trying to grasp it and understand it and has come to a place to understand how important the cross forgiveness is. And I'd love for you to listen to what she has to say. Brene Brown. I, my, my straightforward faith is basically I believe God is love. And it makes total sense to me that Jesus would have to be the son of God because people would want love to be like unicorns and rainbows. And so then you just send Jesus and, and people go, oh my God, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is, you know, eating with the sick. Love is breaking bread with people that, you know, that, you know love is trouble. Love is rebellious. Love is... And so I was listening to this Leonard Cohen song and it said, love is not a victory march. Love is a cold and broken hallelujah. And to me, that made sense about that. That totally like, I like, I got it. That, you know, when I listen to it, I'm like, love is not easy. Love is not like hearts. And those love is very uh, love is very controversial, really. You know, Joe Reynolds is the dean at the church where I go, and um, we had this whole talk on forgiveness. And he said something that was so. I mean, it, it spoke to me first as a researcher because it answered something that I hadn't been able to answer for a decade. He said, 
in order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. I never thought about that before. And I was like, like, everybody was kind of like, what do you mean? He said, whether it's your expectations of a person, there has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. And so he said, you know, in all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, and it's, he's like, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. You know, like, and so I thought about why forgiveness is so hard in our culture, because there's two affects or emotions in my research that I found that people fear the most and it's shame and grief. And so if something has to die in order for forgiveness to happen, and people are deathly afraid to feel grief, then we just won't forgive anybody. Because I don't want to feel grief. I thought Faith would say, I'll take away the pain and discomfort. But what it ended up saying is, I'll sit with you in it. I found so powerful in that is that the whole idea that for forgiveness to occur, a death has to take place. And there just isn't many people's faith enough blood on the floor. And the reality of the fact that, um, you know, it's not just about when we forgive others, but it's the fact that we don't want to move into the grief and say, God, I recognize my sin and what it has done. And I need your blood to cleanse it and cover it.